Emmy Award-winning producer, actor, and comedian Larry Wilmore is back on the air, hosting a podcast where he weighs in on the issues of the week and interviews guests in the world of politics, entertainment, culture, sports, and beyond. Check out Larry Wilmore Black on the Air on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Press Box Friday. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. We've got a big show this week. It's a new episode of our Media Movies series, and our guest is Oliver Stone. Now, you know Oliver Stone movies like Platoon and JFK and Natural Born Killers. I want to take you back before all that to the year 1985. Stone is in his late 30s, and he's mostly a screenwriter having won the Oscar for Midnight Express and having written macho, violent movies like Scarface. At this point, Stone had only directed two movies, both of them unsuccessful, and he was desperate to become a director full-time. And it was a journalist who got Stone back into the director's chair. The journalist's name was Richard Boyle, and as you'll hear, he was a character. Stone decided to make a fictionalized movie about Richard Boyle's exploits covering the Civil War in El Salvador in the 1980s. Boyle in the movie would be played by a fast-talking James Woods, and Jim Belushi played a friend of Boyle's called Dr. Rock. The movie has what we would come to know as a trademark Oliver Stone speech about American foreign policy. Pretty funny if you follow James Woods on Twitter these days. And the making of Salvador, as Stone called the movie, was absolute hell. But the movie got made, and if Stone was still figuring himself out as a director, the movie turned out really, really well. Now, if you haven't seen Salvador, that's okay. I think you'll be interested in the story of how you turn a real-life reporter's adventures into a movie, and how someone like Stone navigated what turned out to be an enormously important moment in his career. Here's Oliver Stone on Salvador. Oliver, how'd you first meet the journalist Richard Boyle? Uh, Richard Boyle was a uh, friend of Ron Kovic's. I met him in 1976 uh, when I was engaged to do Born on the Fourth of July, that first draft uh, for, for the producer. Never get, that version never got made. I got to make it uh, almost uh, 10 years later. 
But uh, Boyle was a friend of uh, from a Vietnam journalist. He'd been there and uh, hanging out with Richard at the Sidewalk Cafe in Venice. And I liked him very much from the beginning. I didn't know on that day that I met him that I'd be making both movies eventually uh, about 10 years later. Yeah. And he's a guy who you said he'd been a foreign correspondent in Vietnam and other places. Yeah. He was always a little bit short of money. He was always um, had unpaid he was always parking in trouble. tickets. He was yeah. an Irish rebel. I mean, for example, he was th- thrown out of Vietnam uh, because of his reporting, which was against the government. I mean, he was critical of the government and they were very sensitive and threw him out of the country. And then he came back in and he covered near the end of the war. He wrote a book about it, uh, a mutiny of the American troops at Firebase Pace, I think it was called. And it's a, it's a lovely book. It's called Flower of the Dragon. It's about the end of the war and the American morale breaking down. He wrote that book. And then he was in Cambodia and he was actually one of the last Americans kicked out of Cambodia just before, uh, at, right after Sidney Shanberg got all the glory. And he used to kid me about it. He said, Shanberg got all the glory. Of course, he got the Pulitzer Prize. I got, I got nothing. But he was reporting for Pacific Radio, Radio Pacific News, uh, the, uh, the Pacifica News, the, uh, the California outlet, progressive outlet. It's a line you left in the movie. I, I was there before until until after Shanberg left. I was. There oh, I forgot. That. Yeah, you're right. You <laughs> see the movie recently. Yes, he, he always used to say that. Uh, he missed his his short, he missed his glory. Richard was one of those oddball. He was very much the Hunter Thompson mold, but he never got famous. People who knew him knew him. Ron Kovic loves him. Uh, I loved him, but he was a handful uh, on Salvador. You know, he was always grubbing for money, always looking for a deal and angle. He was a character. How'd you discover the material that inspired the screenplay? Oh yes, I was up. I was at my. I was at a low point in my own life, uh, screenwriting, and not, I'd had some success. Certainly, a lot of success with Midnight Express, but uh, and Conan the Barbarian and Scarface. But I was not happy because I wasn't directing, uh, and I wanted very much to direct. So I decided that I wasn't. I couldn't fit into the Hollywood business, and I. Basically, used I used my own money to to start projects, and I was up in San Francisco talking to Richard, who had a lot of life experience, and it was fun because he was he was a character unto himself. And as I left San Francisco that day, I got it. He drove me to the airport in his little broken down MG, and in the back back seat there, that little jump seat, there was a, a bunch of pages loose loose loosely binded. And uh, I asked him what it was. It was oil stain. And he said, oh, yeah, just some notes I wrote when I was down in Salvador. He didn't really make a big deal about it. So I said, well, can I read them? You know, uh, it's interesting. I mean, you, I knew it was a war was going on down there, a civil war. So I took him down to L.A. And I, and I read them. And I said, this is it. I knew right away this is the movie. This could be the movie we could make together at a price, him and me and uh, keep it very low budget and uh, break all the rules. Of course, we were crazy. I mean, it was really desperation time. If I had known what was in front of me, I would probably have re-examined my mind and gone to a psychiatrist because it was a gigantic job we were undertaking, which is to go to a civil war and to enlist. What Richard's plan was to enlist the government to give us all the military support in favor of, because we were writing a script that was, of course, right-wing and anti-rebel. And then at the end of that process, we would go up to Mexico and shoot the other half of the movie about the <laughs> rebels. That was his idea. And I thought, and frankly, I was 
desperate enough to believe it. And what popped out to you about those stories? Why did you think it would be a good movie? Oh, he was living on the edge. He, I mean, not only was he at several in several adventures, he knew everybody down there, but he also had a, had a relationship with a beautiful woman who was almost, a, well, I would call her a, a, almost a typical small town Salvadoran woman with a child, with two children. And uh, they, the children are part of that story, as you know. Uh, well, actually, I'm sorry, one child and uh, her brother was murdered in the movie. Her brother was murdered. So she represents a lot of what the, the, what the average person down there was facing. And that's an important part of the story. It's not just the story of an American journalist. It's a story of what a Salvadoran local has to go through and stuff like getting a cedula in order to walk around. I mean, you need to vote. You have to, you have, you're pretty monitored by that. In those days, you were very monitored by the central government. And if you didn't have the right credentials, man, they could kill you on the spot or put you in jail. It was a very dangerous uh, situation for everybody. So you see the opportunity to write about this journalist who's not the conventional heroic Hollywood journalist. This is not Sidney no. Shanberg in the killing fields. Not this at is, all. Not at all. <laughs> this is somebody who's drinking, who's smoking yeah. a little pot and going down there and kind of getting into something that he understands sort of, but doesn't fully. Well, understand. he needs some money. You know, he, 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 take, he, he, he talks his, one of his friends into taking, accompanying him down there to much to the friend's regret. And, you know, he's promising him sex for nothing, very little money, all kinds of women, all kinds of drugs. He can do anything you want in Salvador, no rules. And to some degree it was true. You know, you could pretty much do anything you want down there, get somebody killed for five bucks. I mean, that was the, the Richard's, uh, Richards, come on. Uh, he was known in the community as a, as a bit of a nut. And, uh, uh, you know, when you talk to journalists, legitimate journalists about him, they, they, they laugh. But at the end, on the same time, he did turn out product. And Radio Pacifica, uh, it was, I think it was called that, uh, Free Pacific News, and uh, they, uh, they liked him. But he was running out of money when, in the beginning of our film, and he was trying to, you know, tapping no, as many loans as he could get. And you could see he had some. He made a. He made a. He 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 cashed out on everybody pretty much. So you decide to make the movie, decide to write the movie, and you move Richard Boyle into your home in Southern yes, California for a while until my wife threw him out. <laughs> <laughs> he drank, he drank the baby formula one night, you know. Drank the baby formula. So he's up there sitting there drinking, drinking yeah. beer in yeah. your living room. Oh, yeah. And at some point he runs out of beer and reaches in the fridge and grabs oh, baby formula. At that time, I mean, it must have been three, four o'clock in the morning. He was probably well, well, well gone. He didn't know what he was drinking. <laughs> uh, Richard was an Irish, had that wooden leg, you know, he would just, he could go all night and he didn't need much sleep. Uh, he, uh, you need people like that in life. I mean, where else? You don't get journalists like that. The truth was that Richard could see the situation. Wherever he went, he would live indigenously. He would settle into a hotel for five bucks a week and the lowest level, and he would learn from that level. So it was a different kind of journalism, you know, but it was real street level. And you, I think, we, I think we, we lack that. When you get into these high-flown, you know, publications, they go to the countries, they deal with the highest levels of people and so forth and so on. It's just not, it doesn't give you a true picture of what it's like at the bottom. You mentioned your career being at a low point, which may surprise people who have coming at you now after so many movies. What was your career like in 1985? 
terrible. I was very uh, depressed. My my father had was was dying, and uh, I had a wife, a child, a, a new child, and it was you know I was not happy doing scripts for other people because they were all getting distorted. There was things were changing. Couldn't control the outcome, the product. It was a system that wasn't really working for my creativity. And uh, I had done films many years before as a film student. Out of film school, I did a feature film. I controlled it with my, I did my own film, a horror film. It was called Seizure. And uh, I wanted to go back to that system where I could make, I could be responsible for the final product. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to, and you don't think Hollywood's going to let you direct a movie no. at this point? No, because I'd ha- I had done The Hand, which I, I think is a good film, with Michael Caine in 1981. It came out, and it it did it didn't do well at the box office. And uh, I thought that they gave me, a, you know, they were there was a lot of takedowns, a lot of you know, kind of like you see here, he is the, the, the hot shot from Midnight Express and he, here he has his chance and he blew it, you know, that kind of an attitude. Uh, and it, it's true. I got a lot of heat and people, it wasn't like I was in demand by any means, although I was offered scripts. I was being offered scripts as a screenwriter, but that was not what I wanted to do with my life. So I had to change things. You didn't want to do the path where I'm going to be a, I'm an A-list screenwriter and go down and do, you know, you'd done Scarface by this point. You'd done the first draft of Conan the Barbarian. You did not want to keep going down that road. You wanted to be able to control the material. That's correct. Uh, that's correct. Screenwriters, you know, they maybe they eventually direct if they're good, good, good. But, you know, I think they get burned out, a lot of them. In your late 30s by this point, you wrote in your memoir that if you didn't think if you made your mark as a director yeah. before 40 you might not get a chance to do it. Yeah, a lot of filmmakers make it at 30, you know. <laughs> uh, I was late, uh, but I really had a dream. And I think that's what the book is about. It's it's about a realization of a dream. Stick to your dream. At, thir- at 30, it, was, it looked bad. It didn't look like it was going to happen. And I always thought 30 would be the demarcation of, a, of, a, of my life, but it wasn't. So it, well, the book deals a lot with those between 30 and 40, but it also goes back in time to my parents growing up in America, in France, and what the nature of the Vietnam War was like for me. The screenplay for Salvador is credited to both you and Boyle. How did it get written? <laughs> it got written with sessions very quickly. I, I was doing most of the writing. Richard was doing talking, the talking, telling me these incredible stories. And uh, I, I thought they were great, potentially great. It was one thing after another. The screenplay originally was long, probably three hours long with uh, very violent, very sexual. I wanted to go all out, break all the rules. As I said, I wasn't going to be restricted by the Hollywood parameters. And of course they did restrict me because everybody who read the script said, no, I can't do this. It's just anti-American, blah, blah, blah. Because we had, you know, we, we took down the American involvement with the death squads and then it was too violent and people were being killed left and right. It was too sexual Everything was wrong with it. And truly, I stuck to my guns. We made the damn film because of an English producer who came in and saved my ass because our, our scheme down in South in uh, Central America didn't work out. Our advisor, our military advisor was killed. Uh, he was shot on the tennis court by uh, the rebels, uh, FMLN. And uh, uh, that, was, that was a real setback, but it, it wouldn't have worked anyway. It was just a... We were totally dishonest about the script. We had two scripts, you know, dummy script and the real script. 
And it, it would have been a mess, I think, to get into this thing. And so John Daly from England and Gerald Green, they, they came in and they saved the, the product because they loved it. They loved the script. And, they, and John was a, a fighter. He was a, you know, been on the, he'd been a boxing promoter in Congo. He'd been he, one of the promoters of the Ali fight. He'd seen the world. He, he was a rough guy. He was a merchant marine. He knew people behaved like, he laughed. He loved this stuff because it's real life. It's real behavior. And people in Hollywood were lose, had lost touch with that. They couldn't, they, that rawness of Salvador was not for them. And in fact, we, after we made, you know, we made the movie, the script was turned down repeatedly. And John met, went ahead for distribution, turned down repeatedly for, for distribution. That's very important. So, and Zod had a choice. He could have dropped it and moved on, but he made the film with me for a very limited amount of money. And that's a story unto itself, the way the money goes. And I wanted to write all that up for young filmmakers to understand the independent film process and how films get made and how much money you need and how you have to budget things. Yeah, it's a, it was an up and down struggle. But even then, uh, nobody would in the distribution system would actually support the film uh, in the American side. There was no interest. Uh, and when we actually made the film and we showed the first cut at three hours to uh, an American distribution company, they said, no, they, they actually shut down the screening. It was a very depressing experience. John went ahead and thank God he had guts and he actually distributed the film himself as a small company. It was one of the, in that time period when Hollywood was changing and there was new video releases and smaller films were getting some attention. However, we didn't do anything. We didn't do any business. Nobody knew about us. And actually, but John went ahead and financed Platoon right after that, back to back, for a little bit more money. And I made, as I was making Platoon, Salvador began to be recognized. It began to be recognized. And as I wrote in a book, it started to get some attention. And believe it or not, we ended up at the end of that year with Academy Award nominations for the screenplay and for, and for Jimmy Woods' performance in Salvador, as well as uh, nominations, many nominations for Platoon, which is like a dream for a young, uh, uh, a young uh, film director, a dream. So when you're working on the Salvador script, you did two or three scenes per day. You wrote two or three scenes per day. For yes. people who don't know about writing movies, how fast is that? It's, uh, you know, it's been done. You can, I, I think movie writing, sometimes you can, get, there's two ways to go about it. You can go about it and say, look, I got to get it down. The idea the vision, the treatment, the, the whole feel of the thing. I'd rather do that than to cross the T's and the I's and give it, give the reader a sense of where you're going. Uh, we did it that way. We did the, the big, the big strokes and it got tight. As you get closer to shooting, we get, we made it tighter and tighter. But we wanted to keep the dialogue raw, real, the way people talk. And I think we did a good job of that. Jimmy Woods, of course, brought another element completely to the script because he was a professional actor. At first, I was going to use Boyle as, in the, as himself, which was an interesting <laughs> idea. And I did a screen test, which I describe in the book, uh, Chasing the Light. You'll see the screen test was hilarious because he was not an actor, but he was a funny guy. As I said, he was changing color. He was changing color uh, in the in the uh, screen test because, frankly, he'd wake up one day and he'd be kind of reddish in the face from drinking. Next day, he might be greenish from being sick. It was never reliably the same skin color, and that's very tough to, for an actor. You have to have the same skin color every day. 
<laughs> and I was surprised to learn that you thought of Martin Sheen as, as Boyle in, in the first thing. Well, he accepted the role, and he certainly was a legitimate actor. So when we moved off of uh, Boyle, we, we moved uh, to the actors. Martin was one of the first who accepted. He accepted it. Other people would be shocked and not even read it. And then I met Jimmy for the other role of uh, Jim Belushi role. And he ended up being, he wanted the main role. <laughs> That's very much Jimmy. And he took it. <laughs> he convinced you, no, no, no. Martin Sheen's not the guy to play Richard Boyle. That's I'm right. The guy to That's play right. Richard Boyle. Yes, because Martin was too Catholic for this. <laughs> that was his argument too catholic jimmy was was a catholic but he was a lapsed catholic <laughs> he has such a wonderful fast talking manner right if the yeah. character's a schemer james yes. woods can play a schemer like he schemer, you know, schemer. a schemer he, and a scammer yeah and for somebody who was you know short of money and as as the boyle character was you look at james woods and he looks like he's missed a few meals <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can see that definitely. We started him up in San Francisco and he did, he did look very ratty. <laughs> I would think Boyle did a lot of kind of a lot of different kinds of journalism. By this point, he is a photo journalist uh, in the period you're covering in the movie. Yeah. And I would takes. think the took pictures. Yeah. The very obvious way to do this would be he's going to go to El Salvador and he's going to discover truth through the lens of a camera. Right. That's the that's the hackneyed way to do the story. But you did not write it exactly that way well he was he was both he was a journalist you know he was he's a hand-me-down i mean he, he went to write stories and at the same time take pictures and sell what he could he was a stringer somebody who just turn it in and you make a few bucks and you need leads you need he knew the he knew the other journalists so he had leads and not and he has a few fights with the journalists as you remember uh, with a more legitimate journalist um <laughs> uh, but that's the way you have to do it. You have to do it on your back. And, and he knew the guy who got killed was John Savage, John uh, H- uh, Hogan. Hogan was killed down there, but Ed, I forgot the first name. I'm sorry. Yeah, but John Hoagland, Newsweek uh, Hoagland, photographer. Yes, yeah, he knew him. And they go hunting together for, for, for leads. When you're writing a movie like Salvador, how much do you assume the audience knows about the events? Nothing. And they ended up, they knew nothing about it. And unfortunately, there was very little interest in it. That's where I made my mistake. I thought that I, people would be interested in the civil war on the, on the, down in the Central America. Here, there was all these things happening. Nicaragua was falling. There was, a, there was rev, revolt there. There was revolts in Salvador, in Honduras, in Guatemala. And it was all on fire down there. And I thought there would be significant interest, but I was wrong. And if you look at the box office over the years, there's very little success for South of the Border stories, very little success. Actually, no interest in in the Civil War, which was on our doorstep. And of course, because I'd been in Vietnam, I saw the similarities, that we were fighting the same kind of war, an ideological war against basically reform, against unions, against land reform, against teachers. And you said when you wrote the script, you called it the style agitprop cinema. That's right. Why that style? Well, make no bones about it. I mean, that's what it was. I had been very influenced in my film school years by Z and Battle of Algiers. And I thought, let's make it urgently. Let's make it documentary style. Let's make it like it's happening right now and make it raw, 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 which I tried to do. And I, I think I succeeded. But there was no interest in the film. But eventually it found its way. You see, uh, when Platoon came out, I guess that gave it legitimacy. 
and people saw it over the years, but not enough. Still, it did well. In the end, I can say it did well and got Oscar nominations. Can you believe that Boyle was nominated for an Oscar? He's, <laughs> he's, sitting, in, he's sitting at the Academy Awards there with, in another row, of course, and it's just, a, it's surreal. He was trying to figure out, if I win this, how can I, how can I cash in on it, you know? <laughs> he ended up cashing in on this whole deal because no name is mentioned, but he had got a job. He finally got a job, a, a, a legitimate job at a professional university in California, in the California system as an associate or whatever, an adjunct professor of film in one of these colleges that you see all over the map. And uh, he actually held that job for, I think, 15, 20 years. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So you go down to El Salvador. You talk to these military guys. As you said, you ultimately decide that it's just going to be too crazy to try to make the movie down there. I was oh, yeah. amused to learn that the, that the military guys liked you because you were the guy who oh, wrote yes. Scarface. Yeah, Man, they <laughs> loved me. I, I got treated like royalty down there as the writer of Caricatura. Uh, Scarface. It's, it's, that is the Spanish uh, word for Scarface. Uh, they thought I was wee macho. I had balls, and they loved Tony Montana. He, you know, because he killed people who got in his way, and they, they, he was, he was, he pronounced himself anti-communist. But in Scarface, of course, it's not quite that way. It's, but anyway, he was anti-communist, and killing communists was what it, it was all about for them. Uh, if you want to think about the wars down there. They thought that anybody who agitated for reform, whether he's a teacher or, or a farmer, was a communist if he complained. <laughs> and there's a lot. I mean, it still goes on. You know, in Colombia, for example, I mean, they kill people left and right, the paramilitaries for years now, who profess any kind of reform. How'd you settle on Mexico to shoot the movie? That was the retreat to sanity. Uh, after when you've been down south of Mexico, you understand how crazy it is down there. 
uh, I mean, all those countries, except for Costa Rica, were turbulent. Uh, Guatemala, there was a mass murders going on. Uh, uh, death squads. Yeah, geez. Mexico was a retreat. It was a haven. Now it's not, of course, because it's gotten much more violent. But Mexico in those days was a wonderful retreat. And we had organized film do- crews. We had a studio. We had a, pro- a, a production coordinator there. Not much money, but we were able, and the, the, the business in Mexico was depressed. So we were able to take advantage of all these depressed prices. And, and we had great success in Mexico. We shot, we finished the film there. Financially speaking, you've called Salvador a scam. In what sense was it a scam? Well, we started with nothing. We were going to make it for nothing. We were, I was going to make it for a few hundred thousand dollars. But, and we started with the idea that we're going to get it made, like a film school, this film project, a film student project at NYU. And of course, that ran out of steam quickly when our advisor got killed. And it was clear that it was not going to be easy to put anything in Salvador, anything at all. <laughs> in the middle of a war, you don't go, you don't go make a movie, you know? No. Uh, <laughs> No, not a good idea. Well, we went out to the rebel territories and, you know, we Boyle knew a lot of the generals. He'd been in Salvador years before on the soccer war. He covered that. So he knew the people. He knew the generals. He knew a lot of the inside people in the military. That was our entry card. (laughs) And we traveled around. That was quite a trip. And it's reflected in the movie. You you see some of those scenes where he's our asses. The ass of uh, Richard Boyle is saved at the end of the movie by a military colonel who recognizes him from the old days. So, uh, yeah, Mexico was was a relief, and even that was, as you know from the book, it was very difficult to shoot in Mexico because of our because of our money problems. And we eventually eventually we were asked to leave Mexico. Uh, first, in the first place it was Jimmy. Jimmy was uh, was a hysterical sometimes about the conditions. He was a germaphobe and could not stand anything that was like, you know what I'm saying, uh, germ-ridden or anything like that. So he was complaining all the time. The Mexicans warned him. But the real reason we had to leave Mexico was because of the bills. We didn't pay the bills. And our producer was was a, he was a scam artist. and But he got through, we got through it. And and we got out on the forty second day. I think we we never finished what we wanted to shoot in Mexico. We finished it, the film, up in Las Vegas, and uh, San Francisco. And what kind of toll did the filming take on you personally? It 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 made me older. It certainly uh, thinned out my hair. I felt like I was exhausted after it, uh, but I was happy because, as I said in the book. Uh, I was able to do it. It was my way. And I was able to say the things I, I wanted to say about imperialism, neo-imperialism, Vietnam War. I said quite a few things in that movie through the eyes of, uh, through the mouth of Richard Boyle. Yeah, you have this scene late in the film where Boyle, James Woods, is talking to a couple of Americans. One is like a CIA guy, one's a military guy. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's an Oliver Stone speech, what we would come to know as an Oliver Stone speech. But this is kind of the first one, right, that actually got into a movie. That's correct. Well, there were some pieces of it in Scarface, if you look, and pieces of it in Midnight Express. Uh, and here, though, I didn't cut myself. <laughs> uh, the thing is that at that time, I never expected that, this, that I would be able to do another film again. I, I was just, okay, this is a big film. This is my chance. I'm going to put everything I have into it. And that's why I did that. I put everything I wanted into it because I would not I didn't want to have 
the complaint at the end of my life that, well, I made a film, but I didn't quite put everything I wanted to it. I, I, I had to get it all out. I didn't really expect to work again. And I was quite surprised that John was willing to finance Platoon after all the fights we were having on the editing of Salvador, because it was, it was very violent, very sexy and off the charts. I mean, you have to realize this is 1985. The, the business has loosened up considerably, but in those days it was still tight. We barely got an R rating, barely. So much violence in that movie. That was the nature of my experience there. What was it like to direct James Woods? Excruciating at that time. It, I wanted to kill him. He wanted to kill me at times. We had a, a really, we were like two madmen in a quiz in art, he said at one point. <laughs> uh, uh, but we finished and actually we got a good performance from Jimmy. Jimmy really, really made the film human in his way and made Boyle funny and uh, and you, you enjoyed the character. He's a, you don't see many characters like that in American films. I, I don't know. Have you seen recently? I, they, no. They, they don't have that. And I, I, I regret that we, we, we lack that touch of the street. And he comes in because he's done Once Upon a Time in America. So he's... Jimmy has... Yeah, but that was not considered a success. His onion field was, was a bigger success, I suppose, in this country. Yeah, he had uh, Sergio Leone. He was a big shot. He was a professional actor. We were all amateurs compared to him, and he let us know that repeatedly. <laughs> so he's he's latching onto that power imbalance. I've yes. done yeah, I've yeah, done yeah, these yeah. movies, oh, yeah. and you've never yeah. directed a big yeah, movie yeah, like this. Yeah, and I'm yeah. Gonna, yeah, yeah. And you're not going to direct me. And you mentioned the character Jim Belushi's character, who's named Doctor Rock, this San Francisco DJ who improbably comes down to Salvador with. Woods, yes, with yes. Boyle. How yeah. did how did Woods and Belushi get along on the set? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Who did get along? Belushi wanted to kill him because Jimmy is very good at this. He's done it for years. He knows how to step on a line. He knows he knows the lines and he knows the other person's lines and he 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 knows how to play for a camera. In other words, if you're if two of you are in a shot, he will get the atten- he will get the attention of the camera, not the other actor. <laughs> and in those days, he was he was hungry. He was he, Jimmy had, was hungry. He wanted to. He he would sometimes go too far. He would explode off the screen, uh, and uh, you'd have to calm him down and tame him. But there's a lot of talent there. Tremendous energy. You know, Belushi wanted to kill him. And he was crying at one point, and I think uh, they they eventually got along. But you know, it was that was okay. I mean, I don't mind that they were fighting because he dragged Belushi down there under under. False, false promises, telling him that he would have this in Salvador. He never got it. He barely got out alive. In the movie, they come off as friends who need each other but kind of can't stand each other. That's correct. They're both broke. They're both desperate. Uh, Belushi's wife has left him. Uh, no, Jimmy's wife has left him. Belushi's dog has, has been impounded and, and euthanized at the pound, so they have no friends left. And they take their broken-down Mustang. To, they just drive it down south of the border and keep going yeah i mean it's funny when you say like that sense of the camera that woods has where he's positioning himself in certain ways so that he will own the scene and his yeah. fellow actor will not own the scene yeah you have to That's watch amazing you should watch the scenes in the car driving to mexico i think you'll understand that the what's going on uh, uh belushi had not done many movies so this was all experience for him but he grew fast 
<laughs> and you had a government censor trailing you around in Mexico? Yes. Yeah. That In Mexico in those days, you had to have it. And you couldn't get the license to export the film out of Mexico. You couldn't get out of the country unless you had an approval. They didn't. And she was a she was the number. She was a number. We had to seduce her. We had tried everything. I tried to put my best my best people on her to try to watch her and try to try to seduce her, try to take her out at night, try to keep her keep her interested. And didn't work. Uh, she was especially objective to the violence, and above all, she didn't seem to understand that there was a big difference between Salvador and Mexico in those days. Salvador, in my experience, the streets were filthy and. There was a disorganization to the whole system, and that was part of the charm of the film. Whereas in Mexico, they didn't—they they were much more civilized. About society was at a higher level, and and uh, she could not understand why we were throwing garbage in the Mexican streets, you know. And there were we had vultures there in the streets, you know. I mean, stuff like that. You have a big battle at the end of the movie. That yes. uh, James Woods and and John Savage cover for their various uh, things. Yeah. How do you how do you stage a battle? This is your first battle scene, I take it. That was huge. That was so exciting to do. Uh, so exciting. Uh, I had done uh, nothing like that in my life. It was uh, it was based on the Battle of Santa Ana, which was a key battle where the United States, where the art, the government for the first time was really losing a major battle, and the United States came in at the last second and released weaponry and so forth. And it, cha- it turned the tide of the battle and the government troops succeeded in suppressing the, the attack on Santa Ana, which was a provincial capital, a very important uh, junction point. So the rebels came close, but didn't quite make it. And I did falsify one thing. I did put horse charge in there because I, I said, this is my last film, so I might as well have a horse charge in it. But uh, I, I got my rocks off doing that and a cavalry charge of significant proportions. I had fun. At the same time, it was exhausting. We blew up. In Mexico, we had quite a lot of, liber- they were liberal and they let us blow up half a town. I mean, we did it with uh, with false fronts. We put false f- stores on on fronts and, and we blew those up. So it looked like, a you know, buildings were being devastated. It was quite a battle. Helicopters, helicopters and planes, I forgot. We had planes. Jimmy freaked out. The planes were bombing, uh, strafing the street. Quite a, quite a scene. <laughs> There's a little little uh, moment I love too, where Savage and Woods are looking at each other, and they see the cavalry charge you're talking about coming, and they smile because they're in this horribly dangerous situation. There's bullets whizzing by; they might get shot, but yeah. it's great material, right? There's yeah, a great sure. Picture to be taken, sure. And it's almost like in the middle of this, they they remember their you know their, their journalists, and they think of their careers, and oh my gosh, you know, I'm about yes, to get the exactly. picture of a lifetime. Exactly. And I, yeah. that's, that's, I think, very accurate to most journalists who are real, authentic journalists. I'm, no, I'm not talking about the ones who are hiding what miles from the front. You know, these guys wanted to get down there because they needed money. They needed to get pictures. There was a sad ending to the film and a happy ending to the film? Very, very accurate ending, I think. In those days, America was cooperating with uh, the governments of those countries. And there were so many people trying to get out and cross the border illegally or legally in any way possible. At the end of the film, as you know, uh, Woods is able to get his girlfriend out with her children, her two children. And uh, they get out to the border. You're, it's such a good moment because they've been through so much that you feel so relieved. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, uh, 
the U.S. border, the border patrols catch them inland. And that happened quite a bit when you get uh, you get away from the border, you get 20, 50 miles, 60 miles into the country on your way into uh, uh, San Diego or Las Vegas and uh, you get stopped. And if you didn't have the proper papers or the proper behavior, you were deported. You were taken back to Salvador and that's what happened to Maria. A lot of these people ended up in refugee camps uh, in Guatemala or various other places. You had to fight for that ending? The producers didn't want a happier ending to the film? Yeah, that's correct. After that, they'd been through so much, of course, the Hollywood idea is they got you got to get a break. They have to have a happy ending. And I refused. Even my wife was against it. And John Daly was against it. But I kept like it was my film and I was going to go down with it, you know. That was my attitude. And I I think if I had a happy ending, it might have made more money at that time. I'm, I can't say it for sure. You know, there is a formula to these things, right? I like the ending the way it is because it feels raw. So you shoot the movie in Mexico, you finish up in San Francisco and Las Vegas. And how much of the movie did you think you had gotten at that point? I was happy. In my, I was very happy. I, I didn't know all the problems I had that I was going to have on editing. I, I didn't know it would be rejected by everybody. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be three hours, but man, I was happy. It was the greatest moment, one of the great moments I'd had. I had never been able to make the film I wanted until that moment. Mm-hmm. And you look right. at the, fi- the finished cut and you think, I've, I've gotten the movie, I've made the movie. I well, I, I was on my way. There's a lot of issues. You know, There was a lot of stops, but... No, I, I, I fought with everyone to get the, keep the movie intact, to keep the integrity of it intact. As you say, Hemdale winds up releasing the movie themselves. Yes. 1986. Yeah, so. it, which was not, they did not have the ability to release it, but they did it because everybody else turned it down. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, basically, it was a, it was a, a a small release uh, in April of April of '86, and I was heartbroken. But I had John was good for his word and sent me to the Philippines. And I was in the Philippines when it opened, and I, I was reading about you know the business was poor. It opened on the East Coast mostly, and then in the West Coast is where we picked up business because I suppose there's a huge Salvadoran community on the West Coast, and they did come out for the film. So there was, uh, thank God for the West Coast there and Arizona and those places we did business. And then it started to pick up on the East Coast. We got some good reviews. You read reviews? Yeah, those, are you kidding? We needed them. <laughs> Anything we could get. You know. <laughs> David Denby, New York Magazine, yes. really liked the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He called me. Uh, he said I went from being a bum <laughs> to being a, a hero or something. Uh, a bum meaning... Because I'd been, they they thought of me as some kind of right wing, uh, uh, violent uh, extremist. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, Scarface, I suppose, and uh, Midnight Express. But as you know from reading my book, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, and I said Pauline Kale wrote this. She said Stone writes and directs as if someone had put a gun to the back of his neck and yelled "Go," and didn't take it away until he'd finished which is not a bad line and fairly correct in this case, I think. No, I think it's going certainly true about my work in general. <laughs> I think I, I kept going. Once I got, once I got, uh, call it, accepted in this Hollywood uh, distribution system, which is to say get into it, which is to say Platoon actually was distributed and made a fortune despite 
all the problems we had made a fortune. I mean, talking about worldwide fortune. Uh, John Daly, from being a nobody producer, had made his five, six million dollar movie, and it was suddenly worldwide business in every country of the world. It's, you can't believe the change. Uh, a lot of that money was stolen. I never saw most of it, but it was unbelievable change. But at that point, I could get, I ran like, I said, this is a break for me. I made eight more movies in 10 years. I made eight movies in eight years, basically, from 19, I worked steady without stopping from 1986 through 1996. So this is so, so Salvador comes out in the spring of 86, Platoon later in 86, and then you make eight more movies. Right. Over the next. Without stopping, because I figured that they're going to get, they're going to, they're going to throw the net on me and th- put me back in the, in the nut house. You know, they're never going to let me go on. So I, I hurried and I actually had success. Uh, Wall Street, whoever thought a business movie would make money again, I, I bucked the odds, but it turned out okay. Turned out okay, made money. And then I did a failure called Talk Radio, but it's a great little film. And then I did uh, Born on the Fourth of July, and that put me, thank God, that Tom Cruise and all that, it did well. It did very well at the box office. And then one thing after another, The Doors, The JFK, uh, Heaven and Earth, which was a flop. And then uh, Natural Born Killers, my God, what a controversy. And then right after that, Nixon, which is a a three-hour, 18-minute movie that I'm very proud of. It's an amazing film. What did Richard Boyle think of the finished film? Salvador, he loved it. Of course, I mean, he wanted he wanted to. Well, what's he going to do? He's you know anything would work for him. Uh, <laughs> he got an Oscar nomination for Christ's sake. Uh, <laughs> he showed up at the Oscars with a new girlfriend. He was so he was so uh, happy. Uh, and uh, as I say, he got a job at the university for a, a long lasting job uh, as a film professor. And you thought about doing a sequel where Boyle would go to Beirut? Oh yeah, the war yeah. there. Yeah, that was a wonderful idea. I wish we'd done it. Uh, but we'd been through so much hell on this film that I don't know if I had the guts to, to, to face that again. But the idea, yes, was that Boyle had a hundred stories. He'd been everywhere. And we and we both knew uh, I had been in Lebanon. My first wife had been Lebanese. So uh, we, we, we the plan was for him to start in Sun City, Arizona. He goes home to his parents' uh, for a rest and life in Sun City, which was unbelievable. His, the scenes are hilarious of Richard Boyle, who's a chaotic guy in Sun City, Arizona, breaking all the rules. So it goes from there. He, get, he can't stay in Arizona. He's lost Maria and Salvador. He goes back to, uh, he goes to Ireland to make a few dollars with the, with, the, with the IRA. And of course, he gets into trouble with the British. But then he moves on to Beirut, which is going on. And there's quite a battle there. Uh, as you know, and he has a girlfriend on the Arabic side of the equation and Hezbollah, all that. He gets into this mess in, in Lebanon and barely gets out alive. The Americans, of course, are, there's the big blowing, blowing up the American Marines at that base. 250 of them are killed. And uh, it was some story, but we never really wrote it. We, we talked about it, talked about it, but never really put it to paper. I was so busy with the other films, you know, Platoon, then I wanted to do Wall Street before it was too late. So I didn't get back to it. And then I had the fights with Richard too. You know, there was some, some falling out. Did he, did he sue you at some point? Yeah, he made it. He made attempts to, yes. Yeah. He made for attempts. More money, for, for money that oh, he, sure, said he sure. was owed from the picture. No, and I tried to get him paid. I tried, but there was, it was hard to get him paid on Salvador, you know, 
I got, I made money on platoon. So, and I brought him to the Philippines. I tried to help him out and get him going, but Salvador was never a money, uh, never a money deal. He was, you know, and he paid, it paid off for him in the sense that he did have the professorship. Yeah. And I read he ran for a uh, seat in the California state assembly in 1988. So two years after the movie comes out and his portrayal in the movie was used against him by his Republican opponent who said, see this, that guy was a sleazebag in the movie. You can't possibly (laughs) possibly vote for him. He was always running for something. When I, when I went up to San Francisco the first time, to, to to when I got the script, uh, the the notes to, that he written, he he was running for board of supervisors in San Francisco, and I would go around with him and uh, see his uh, his campaign. He, <laughs> what a campaign it was! Uh, he came in thirteenth or uh, out of fourteen people in the in, on, on the election. He was character though. The election rally we, we went to. He was always trying to get in public office because that's where he figured he could make some money. So when was the last time you watched Salvador? Oh, I'd say a year ago. Yeah. And do you, you know, sometimes writers, when they see an early piece of writing, they look at it and go, Oh, I would have done that differently and that differently and that differently. Do you do that when you watch a movie? Sometimes. Yeah, sure. And I mean, listen, I, 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 in the book I wrote that I know that there are some things that are not that are rough in Salvador. And I, and I knew that there was crudity, because also I was a new new director. I mean, it was my second feature film, a third feature film, and I had I was learning the ropes. But I'm still very proud of it because the, it's a spirit that's more important than the finesse. Oliver Stone, thanks for coming on the press box. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it, and thank you for having me. A little postscript here: Salvador came out in March 1986. Nine months later, Stone's next movie, Platoon, came out which won the Oscar for Best Director along with Best Picture, and, well, we've been in Oliver Stone world ever since. Your mileage may vary on some of the more recent episodes. Thanks very much to Oliver Stone. Production Magic is always by Erica Cervantes. If you like these interviews, a gentle plea to help me spread the word. I really appreciate it. We've got some very cool ones coming up, including another tale of how a great book was written and a visit from one of your favorite ringer people. David Shoemaker and I are back Monday. More lukewarm takes about the media. Have a fantastic weekend.